Written by J.L. Goodwin, 1990. All right, ladies and gentlemen, gear up and be ready to enter the water in 20. That was the call I heard from Victor, our team leader, as I stood on the rear deck of the research vessel, Adriatic Glass. The chilly wind and biting sea spray of the Atlantic hitting me in the face as I stared out at the dark blue waves crowned with white caps. Above my head, on its tether, dangled a yellow submersible, the restraints holding it in place letting out small, soft creaks of protest as she shifted with the ship bobbing up and down in the waves, only kept in place by her anchor. I turned and looked over the opposite side of the ship. 300 miles offshore, I couldn't see land. I knew just over the horizon to the north lay Nantucket Island. To the west, New York City. As I looked back towards the shore, a particularly nasty gust of wind slammed in my back, sending a shiver straight up my spine. I quickly flipped the collar of my coat up to protect myself, then looked around me at the others gearing up. Mitchell, you'll be going in the submersible this time, due to your hand. He called again striding over to check on the four scuba divers who were being assisted into their twin tanks and weighted belts. I glanced down at the bandage on my right hand and sighed heavily. A friggin' course I had to hurt myself right before the voyage, I thought miserably. Any injury is detrimental when you're on the job. When you're a professional scuba diver and underwater surveyor, it's disastrous and can bench you. I've been looking forward to this trip for months, feeling giddy as a kid in a candy shop with a $20 bill scrunched up in his hand. But when I distractedly looked up from fetching a late night snack to my wife, I'd ended up with my hand slammed in the door of our vintage refrigerator. I despaired that I'd be forced to just stay topside, letting the others have the adventure I'd waited almost a year for. But luckily for me, Victor knew how badly I wanted to go. And so I'd convinced Jake, our resident submersible pilot, to swap out for me, at least on the first dive. The submersible, nicknamed the Halibut by the crew, lowered down until it sat on the deck, allowing me to, rather delicately, climb up and slide into the single-man cockpit. To say it was a cramped space would be understating it. You barely had room to breathe in this thing with all the gauges and pipes everywhere. It was a place that, if you had claustrophobia, would have been more or less hell. I heard someone else climb up the side. I turned my face up to find Jake's smiling face staring down at me as he began to pull the overhead hatch closed. Don't have too much fun down there, he called to me. Remember to save a little bit for me. I laughed. Don't worry, bro. I'll make sure you at least get the first look at the rusting propellers. He laughed at my quip, quickly flipping me the bird in a good-natured manner before closing the hatch and sealing it. Shaking my head and still chuckling to myself, I slipped into the seat and buckled myself in as I felt the winch begin to lift me off the deck. I felt a slight sense of dizziness as it rocked back and forth, watching the deck slide away under me and be replaced by the waves. Then it began to be lowered into the ocean. The rocking intensified as the halibut bobbed up and down in the waves like a cork, and I took a deep breath, fighting off the slight feeling of seasickness, which had begun to creep up on me like a predator. Two safety divers swam over to me, unhooking the submersible from its tether and making final checks to be sure the outer hull was in safe condition. One of them formed his hand into the okay sign, signaling that I was good to go, and I mirrored his gesture as I slipped on my headset. Halibut to control. All final checks have been made. We are ready for descent, I said into the mic. A short crackle of static filled my headset, and then I heard Victor's voice greet my ears. Halibut, this is control. You are go for descent. Enjoy the trip. 
copy that, I replied, then reached out and pulled the handle to my right. The sound of the submersible's ballast tanks emptying filled my ears, and with a last look at the cloudy sky overhead, I slipped below the waves. Instantly, the dizzying feeling left me, and I felt a growing sensation of happiness flow through me. I'm home. Ever since I've been a child, I've been in love with the ocean, and I felt more at home in it, especially underwater, than I did on land. It's why I'd worked to get my oceanography degree from Florida State and then spent another couple years getting certified for deep water diving, both as a submersible pilot and a diver. I'd excelled at my studies so greatly that a private research and surveying corporation, which I won't name, hired me as soon as I graduated. I spent years diving on shipwrecks and archaeological sites. By the age of 33, I'd already visited the wrecks of the Titanic, the Lusitania, and countless others. But the wreck I was heading to now had been one of the ones I had looked forward to the most. I looked at the depth gauge to the small porthole window to the outside. Passing 50 feet, I said into my mic. Only about 200 feet to go, I thought. The light had already begun to fade from the surrounding ocean, and I felt a small pang of excitement and fear shoot through me. Some people may find venturing to the depths of the ocean where little to no light can reach utterly terrifying. For me, it was an adventure I looked forward to every time. I loved seeing the deep ocean creatures swimming past my window, loved the sounds of being far down. Because sound travels farther in water than air, you can hear the call of a whale hundreds of miles away, and the sound is equal parts haunting and beautiful. And contrary to popular belief, underwater is not silent, especially in a submersible. You can hear the sound of the current rushing by outside quite often. It almost sounds like what I imagine it would be like to hear the winds on another planet. I tapped the mic. Victor, you mind if I put on some music to keep myself company while I head down? There was another burst of static. No problem at all, Mitch. Just don't play it so loud you can't hear me. The divers are in the water and they're beginning their descent in 10 minutes. I grinned. Copy that. I'll be waiting for them down there, I said, then turned to a small wall-mounted yellow boombox to my right. As I watched the depth gauge pass 100 feet, I pulled a cracked CD case from under the seat and dropped the disc into the player. A few moments later, a small cabin was filled with the husky, seductive voice of Diana Doors as she began to sing Imagination. I leaned back into the seat, my smile widening. The golden age of Hollywood singer and actress was always my choice of soundtrack for dives in the sub. I watched the gauges then let my gaze flick over to a small black and white photograph of what I'd be seeing shortly. The Andrea Doria. The ship had been my unicorn. The one I wanted to dive on and see ever since I'd been a child and learned about her and her sad fate. She'd been one of the more luxurious ocean liners in the Italian fleet, steaming back and forth from Europe to the US ever since she'd gone into service in 1953. That was until the fateful day of July 25th, 1956, when, during a passage through a particularly thick fog bank, she'd collided with another ship, the Stockholm. The Swedish ocean liner had been badly injured, but still managed to make it back to New York Harbor. The Andrea Doria, however, hadn't been so lucky. Having been struck at a 90-degree angle and in a way that penetrated her fuel tanks and caused her watertight compartment system to fail, she listed severely to one side, and the following morning, she'd floundered and slipped below the waves, 
all the while being filmed and photographed by planes flying overhead. The accident claimed the lives of 51 people, 46 on the Andrea Doria, and five aboard the Stockholm. It had been the deadliest maritime accident since the Titanic. I thought about this as I listened to the music, Diana's voice shifting into roller coaster blues. It always gave me a bit of an eerie feeling, knowing that I was going to a place which, for many, had been where their lives had been snuffed out. For a moment, the thought made the now dark ocean outside the porthole take on a slightly sinister atmosphere, and the childish part of my mind raced with images of slimy, shimmering monsters slipping through the depths, their mouths poised open to snatch anything unsuspecting in their path. I shook my head. Get a grip, Mitchell. It's a shipwreck, not a haunted house, and not a horror movie. I glanced at the depth gauge. Passing 130 feet, I said into the mic, then leaned towards the porthole. The eerie emotion and thoughts had slipped away, and I was once again gripped by excitement. In less than 10 minutes, I'd be flicking on the outside lights and seeing her for the first time. Copy that, Mitch, Victor said. The divers are moving down the anchor line. We'll have about a half an hour to 45 minutes bottom time before having to ascend to complete their decompression stops. I copied, knowing that somewhere above, the other four were swimming down the huge anchor chain towards me. As I reached 140 feet, I reached out and flipped the switches for the exterior lights. Instantly, the darkness that had surrounded me for the last 20 minutes was banished away, both from the porthole and hull-mounted cameras which fed back to screens around me. I felt my pulse quicken as I suddenly caught a glimpse of something floating out in the darkness. The thoughts of monsters returned with a vengeance for a moment, until I realized what I was seeing. Nets. It's fishing nets. The wreck had caught many fishing nets over the course of close to 62 years she sat on the ocean floor, making it more than a bit of a hazard for divers and submersibles alike. The wreck had already claimed the lives of multiple scuba divers over the years for that exact reason. It suddenly dawned on me that it meant I almost had to be directly on top of the wreck. A various dangerous place for me to be. Cursing softly to myself, I gripped the joystick with a slightly sweaty hand and maneuvered the halibut about a hundred feet to the left, turning it to face where I'd come from. And I finally saw, with my own eyes, what I'd waited to see for decades. Holy shit. I breathed out softly. I'd been right to move when I had. I'd almost forgot she was 90 feet wide. Directly in front of me, the porthole was filled with nothing but the immense shape of the ship's portside hull, which had heaps of rust accumulating on it. You could barely see the black and white paint which had once adorned the hull, except in very small patches. Glancing at the screens for the left and right cameras, I saw it was almost directly in the midsection of the ship. Both the fore and aft sections of the ship stretched away from me, out into the darkness beyond the lights. I reached out and hit pause on the music, hitting the record button on the cameras. I tapped the mic. Control, this is the halibut. We have found the Doria. Through the headset, I could hear the team back topside clap and congratulate each other. And then Victor spoke. Copy that, halibut. How's she looking? I maneuvered the submersible a little further away from the wreck, looking down at her where she lay on her starboard side on the ocean floor. I tapped my mic again. Well, the experts were right. She's disintegrating in the currents rather quickly. The entire top of her is basically fallen away, revealing the inner compartments and rooms. I stared at the massive gaping hole running down the middle of the once great ship, 
where the bridge, upper decks, and first-class cabins had once been. Seeing her like this filled me with a great pang of sadness as I quickly glanced at the photo of her from her glory days. From that beauty to this. I continued. The fishing nets we got reports of are still here, so warn the divers to stay clear of them. And the great opening will likely be the best way for them to enter the ship. There was a larger burst of static as I felt a rather strong gust of ocean current hit the sub, jostling it slightly. The rushing sound of cold water, likely coming from the Labrador current, passed me. Copy that. We'll pass the message along, Victor said, but I wasn't listening any longer. My eyes were fixated on a camera pointed down and to the left, facing into the interior of the ship. Out of the corner of my eye, I caught a glimpse of something darting across the screen, something I hadn't been able to see properly. All I knew was that it had been extremely fast. What the hell was that? I kept staring at the screen, waiting to see if it would show up again. Mitch, everything all right? I started as Victor's voice filled my ears again, knocking me out of the almost trance-like state I'd fallen into. Oh, yeah. Sorry about that, Vic. I copy your last, I said, my voice trailing off. Uh, you sure? His voice held a slightly concerned tone. I debated for a moment not telling him what I'd seen, then decided to come clean. Keeping secrets down here could cost both myself and the divers soon to arrive their lives. Yeah, just... Just I swear I caught a glimpse of something moving around the wreck. Closer to the starboard side, I admitted. What'd it look like? He asked, sounding both curious and wary. I honestly didn't see enough of it to know. It was just a quick flash and then gone, I replied. There was a moment's pause as I heard him talking with the others, then his voice came back strong. Copy that. The guys up here say it's likely just a fish moving through the wreck. But keep an eye out for it again regardless. I was about to acknowledge him when I heard another voice cut through the speakers. Control, Mrs. Andrews. We've reached the bottom and can see the lights of the halibut off to our left. It was Bradley, the leader of the four-person diving team, speaking through a microphone mounted in his mask. Copy that, Andrews. Proceed to the sub, then prepare for entry into the wreck. You've got 20 minutes to work now. Unlike myself, the diving team only had a short time to stay at these depths. They had to ascend back to the surface slowly and stop at certain points to make sure gases formed in their bodies from being so deep didn't cause them to develop the bends, which could be fatal. Almost as if on cue, I saw the small lights of the four divers appear as they swam into range of the submersible's lights. Enjoying the view, Mitch? I heard Stephanie, one of the other divers, ask me over the comms. I shook my head, allowing a small smile to creep back in my face at the sound of the excitement in her voice. Even starting to go... She's still gorgeous, I admitted. She's not what she used to be, is she? Pedro, another of the divers, joked. I wouldn't book a first-class ticket on her now, that's for sure. Said the final member of the diving team, Grace. All right, enough with the jokes, Bradley said seriously. We don't have much time. I saw him wave to me. Mitchell, keep the lights on the exposed intersection, he said, gesturing with his hand. We're gonna enter now and be back out in... He checked his diving watch on his wrist. Fifteen minutes. I nodded. Copy that, Brad. Be safe and enjoy yourself. I allowed a wistful tone to creep into my voice. I wish I was going with you guys. Bradley allowed himself a small chuckle. As do I, my friend. 
as do I. And with that, they turned and swam away from the sub towards the wreck. I watched them go, seeing them flick off more powerful lights as they reached the hulk. I saw them split into two teams of two, one entering the passageway towards the stern section and the other towards the bow. I tapped my mic. Control, they're inside. Starting the clock. I reached over and hit a digital timer, which began to count down from 15 minutes. Copy that, Halibut. Victor said simply, then clicked off. For a few minutes, I was left alone, listening to the sound of a whale echoing off somewhere much farther out to sea, along with the whirring of the sub's thrusters and the roar of the currents. Then I heard Bradley speak, his voice slightly muffled by a layer of static due to the ship's hull in the way. Mitchell, Steffi and I have reached what has to be a galley of some sort, he said with a tone of awe. This place is incredible. I felt a pang of jealousy tear through me, but bit it back. Copy that, Brad, I said as I heard another voice come through the headset. Mitch, this is Grace. Pedro and I have reached a passageway. We're going down a deck. Copy that. Make sure you mark your path so you can find your way back. She acknowledged, then clicked off. I thought about some hidden treasure locked within the cargo hold. A rare concept car from the mid-50s called the Chrysler Norseman, which had been on a way to an auto show aboard the doomed ship. It's probably a little more than rubber tires and metal shavings by now, I thought. As I daydreamed, I again caught a glimpse of movement on one of the cameras, this time from one facing to the right. I'd seen the same vague shape I'd seen before, but this one seemed different somehow. I tapped my mic. Hey, Brad, do either your team or Grace's just stick their head out of one of the passageways? I asked, hoping he'd tell me yes, but the answer I received was not the one I wanted. Negative, Mitch. We're both deep inside the ship. Why? I felt my pulse quicken slightly and swallowed. I tried to force it away, but the two appearances on the cameras had slithered underneath my mental defenses, making me feel as though insects had burrowed under my skin. I just thought I saw something on one of the cameras, twice now, darting around in the wreck. I forced my voice to remain cool and calm. Do me a favor and keep an eye out, all of you guys. There was a moment of silence. Copy that, Mitch. Grace, you heard him. Keep an eye out. Copy. I heard Grace say, her voice sounding a little worried. Sharks, eels, and other creatures love to inhabit shipwrecks. The last thing we needed to happen was for one of the guys to bump into one in a confined space. I looked at the clock. 90 minutes till they come back out, I thought, with a bit of relief that time was passing so quickly. That's when I heard Stephanie's voice come through the comms. Hey, did you see down the end of that corridor there? She asked quietly. No, I didn't. I swear, I saw something looking at us from a doorway or something. She said. After a second, I heard him answer her. Well, we've got about eight minutes left. Let's go take a look. Before I could tell them to be careful, I heard Pedro's voice speak. Hey, Grace, take a look over here. I saw it. What the hell was it? A chill crashed over me, as if the hatch above me had opened and allowed the ocean to rush in. They're both seeing something in there. Something wasn't right. All of my instincts were telling me so. I tapped my mic. Control, this is the halibut. Both Brad and Grace's teams are seeing something in the ship, but are unable to make out what it is. 
I couldn't help a small shake in my voice. Victor, something isn't copacetic here. I'm recommending pulling them all out and heading for the surface. There was a huge burst of static, louder and longer than I'd heard before. I thought I heard Victor's voice somewhere within it, but after a moment it dropped out completely, leaving only silence. I pulled off the headphones and stared at them, running my hands down the wire to make sure I hadn't accidentally unplugged them. What the hell is going on? We're only 220 feet down. This hasn't failed us even when we were two and a half miles underwater. As I fumbled with the headset, I froze as a sensation fell over me. It was the feeling of being watched, and in a one-man submersible over 200 feet in the dark ocean, it was not one that I had ever experienced before. I forced my eyes over to the small porthole, half expecting to see a giant eye pressing against the glass. Nothing was there, but the feeling remained, filling me with a sense of dread I've never had when diving before. I had begun to put the headset back on when a sound blared, causing me to let out a short yell. It was the boombox. Somehow, the music had begun to play again, only now it was playing out of more than just the stereo speakers. We'd wired it to play out of an underwater speaker mounted on top of the submersible for when we were doing more shallow water dives, to give the divers something to listen to while working, though it was always kept shut off during deep ocean dives. Now, though, it had turned on, and the music was blasting out into the ocean, along with the inside of the sub. I jammed the headset back on my head and began to fiddle with the boombox's controls, trying to turn the music off. But no matter what I pressed or how hard I hit it, it refused to stop playing. Nor would the speaker turn off. Mitchell, Bradley here. What the hell are you doing? I heard Bradley call through the headset. I'm not doing anything! The music turned on for no reason! I yelled. As I fought to regain control over the CD, I heard him call for everyone to leave the ship. As I was left alone again for a moment, I suddenly realized the song playing wasn't the next one on the track list. It was one from the beginning of the disc. Diana was singing the first track, a song called The Point of No Return. For some reason, the realization of the song caused another shiver to shoot up my spine. As I listened to her singing about being beyond the point of no return, asking why not give in, let yourself go. That's when I heard Bradley's voice. Stephanie, what the hell is that? The tone of his voice was something I'd never heard before. Fear. The man was an experienced ex-Navy diver, someone who'd done underwater combat. He never lost over anything, not even a pack of aggressive humbled squid off the coast of California. To hear him palpably afraid made me feel beyond terrified. Oh, Oh God. I heard Stephanie gasp out. A second later, Grace's voice filled my ears, filled with panic. Mitchell, something's in here with us. She shouted. Oh, fuck me. There's more of them. They're all around us. Pedro screamed. I jammed down the transmit button. Guys, get out of there right now. I ordered, my own voice shaking. But the comms were filled with chaos. Jesus, there's at least 20 of them coming from all directions. Mitchell, there's at least 20 or... 25 coming out of the dark towards us. Stephanie, in here. We can't tell what they are. They're just shadows out of the lights. Pedro cut in. Oh my god. That isn't. That can't be. His voice trailed off, and then the entire channel was taken over by an almost painful burst of static. I stabbed the transmit button. Grace, Pedro, Stephanie, Brad. Anyone answer me? The only thing I received was static as the song began to repeat itself. 
I put my hand on my mouth, feeling horror like I'd never felt flow through me. I got to try the surface again. I reached for the switch to swap over to the surface channel again when multiple ear-piercing sounds assaulted my ears. As I listened to it, I felt the front of my jeans turn damp as I pissed myself with fear. It was the sound of my four co-workers, my four friends, screaming. They were all screaming at the same time, each wail overlapping each other. All of them sounded as though they were being tortured in the worst possible way. It was beyond horrific. It was the most horrific, pained sound I had ever heard. For what had to be less than 20 seconds, but what felt like an eternity, they continued to scream, never drawing in breath. Just unending screams which I thought would have torn out their vocal cords before all the comms cut to static. My breathing came in short, ragged gasps as I fought to keep myself from falling into a panic attack. Oh fuck, oh fuck, oh fuck. I kept repeating to myself in my head. Tears began to fall from my face, both for my friends and the amount of fear sweeping through me like snake's venom. That's when all the lights and cameras in the submersible went out, plunging me into complete darkness. The music died away as well. I fought back a scream, bumbling around in the blackness. There was a tiny amount of light coming from the gauges for the depth and power, showing me that the motor still had power. Then why was everything else going? The thought was torn away from me as something slammed to the side of the halibut, enough to pitch me into something, causing a searing pain to flash through my head. In the dark, I felt the warm trickle of what had to be blood begin to drip from what had to be a pretty nasty gash. What the fuck? As I attempted to sit back down, another impact struck the sub, this time from the opposite side. It was followed by another, and a second later, the submersible began to be pummeled from all directions by God only knew what. All of a sudden, the music blasted back into life, louder than it had been before. The point of no return began to scream into my ears. I screamed as well, my voice almost overwhelming the vocals. I don't want to die down here. I screamed in my own mind. Impact after impact kept coming, and I knew the sub could only take it for so long. After enough, it would implode, and along with it, would go me. I felt a wave of determination surge through me. I crashed around the dark like a bull in a china shop, trying to find the switch to fill the ballast tanks with air. I leaned forward, stumbling as the song threatened to overwhelm my own screaming thoughts. I began to feel despair as I heard a loud groan coming from the submersible's outer hall, as if it was screaming out in protest itself. That's when I felt my hand grab onto what I'd been looking for. Screaming out loud again, this time more of a battle cry than of terror, I slammed it upwards. For a moment, nothing happened. I looked forward towards where the porthole to the outside was. The low glow of the gauges barely illuminated it. It also illuminated something else. Something which drained all the blood from my face and made me scream louder than I ever had in my life. And then the submersible began to rise, very slowly at first, but as the tanks filled with more air, it rose quicker. I saw the depth gauge rise to 110 feet, and I saw the first beams of light begin to flicker down from the surface as I kept climbing away from the hell beneath me. I pulled my knees up against my chest, curling myself into a ball and began to sob loudly. As the sub rose to 80 feet, the music, that damn music finally faded away, seeming to short out completely leaving nothing but the sound of water rushing by. That's how they found me, curled up in a ball on the pilot's seat, unable to stop crying. They immediately pulled me out and after patching up my head wound, took me to the ship's hyperbaric chamber, fearing my rapid ascent and giving me the bends. After a few days of observation, I was allowed out, where Victor pulled me aside. I was allowed out, where Victor pulled me by myself into an empty room. 
What the hell happened down there? He asked, almost desperately. I almost lied to him, fearing I'd be slapped with some sort of post-traumatic disorder label. But I came clean, telling him everything I had seen and heard, not to mention the experience at the end. He was silent for a long time and led me out to the rear deck of the ship. We had already begun steaming back to port. As we approached the stern where the halibut dangled from her hook, he wordlessly pointed to it. I couldn't help but gasp as I finally got to see her after surfacing. Almost every square inch of her exterior hull had multiple dents in the sturdy metal. Normally it would take having to slam straight into a wreck or reef to cause even a tiny dent to show up but somehow it looked like someone with the strength of Superman had taken a baseball bat to it. My jaw hanging open, I turned to Victor, who said nothing. He said nothing more for the rest of the trip back. There was a huge inquiry when we got back to shore, both by the company and the Coast Guard. We were all forced to take the stand in a closed hearing that, I found out later, nobody knew about. Many divers had died on that wreck before, but this was the single biggest diving disaster that had ever happened on it. After a long deliberation, the committee overseeing everything came to the conclusion that it had been the negligence on the part of Victor and the others on the surface, which had led to the four deaths. As I was trapped in the sub, I couldn't do anything to help, and was therefore absolved of anything. But Victor and the entire team were fired and fined massively. The committee also declared that nobody, aside from the people in the room, would ever know that they had died inside the wreck. They gave some asinine excuses as to why, which I didn't pay too much attention to. The families of the four were told that they died on another diving expedition, and that their bodies were too deep to be recovered. We were all forced to sign a metric fuckton of NDAs, warning of jail time if we ever attempted to tell the press or anyone else, which I'm breaking by posting this here. I honestly couldn't give a damn at this point anyways. I immediately quit my job with the company as soon as it all ended. They gave me a nice parting bonus, saying it was for years of loyal service. I knew it was actually hush money. I can't even look at the ocean now without feeling as though I'm going to begin screaming my head off, and my dreams are constantly plagued with nightmares, always going back to that tiny, cramped space, hearing my friends scream somewhere inside the wreck, hearing that damn song repeating itself, almost like it had been a message. Seeing what I had through the porthole, in the dim light. Listen, I'm posting this, both to finally share what happened to them, to me, and give you a warning, especially to scuba divers and other researchers. You need to stay away from the wreck of the Andrea Doria. Everyone does. It's not safe. Let it rust and rot away until it's nothing more than a pile of metal lying on the seabed. And even then, stay far away, because the ship still has occupants and I think that the divers who lost their lives over the years didn't drown in the nets or get lost inside not all of them at least why do I think that because of what I saw out of that porthole pressed up against the glass something which was way worse than any sea monster I could have seen something that causes me to constantly wake up screaming in the middle of the night I saw a hand, a human hand. Thank you for listening. You can handle another horror story. 
Right.